you are listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia. Today we are on Monte Bondone. Buonasera, il Marone. Buonasera, il Fribone. How's it going? I think it's going really well. I feel quite upbeat about being on a mountain top, I guess, almost here with you on the Monte Bondone. You had a day off yesterday, didn't you? You've been able to recharge those batteries, so to speak. Yeah, um, I'd say that. Yeah. Will it show this evening, do you think? This evening in the episode <laughs> yeah. or later on? Yes. <laughs> Both, I hope. Yeah. Yeah, that's my yeah. ambition anyways. Well, it's good to hear that you're invigorated by the mountain air, Brian. We're being overlooked right now by... Do you know what? You, you've heard of the Tre Cime di Lavaredo, and uh, we're going there at the obviously. weekend. Well, we're going there at the end of the week, and it could be decisive for the Giro d'Italia. It will but, be decisive for Giro d'Italia. Yes, but there is also the Tre Cime del Bondone, because people talk about Monte Bondone as though it's one single mountain. That's actually not the case. It's three summits um, make up this mountain massif. The Cornetto. So the croissant, mm. or the, if you're if you listening from the UK, the ice cream. Uh, Dos d'Abramo and the Cima Verde, the green summit. That might be the green summit we can just see. It is very green, Brian, overlooking us right now. But we are, we're about 1,500 meters above sea level at the moment. So we're about 100 meters below where the finish line was, about a kilometer away. We're sitting outside the press room. Uh, press room where there's a lot of activity still isn't there yeah. this is uh, this time of night you've got people who've been out on motorbikes all day commissaires photographers coming back to the race headquarters you've got journalists coming out you've got all sorts of other ex-riders other people who need to come to the race headquarters for various reasons um, i'm actually looking at one of my journalistic heroes the fantastic rider Alex Ross from... I think you're talking about me then. <laughs> I think people at this point know that I'm looking at you. And I'm looking at Alex Ross, who is one of, I think, the most brilliant riders in in the Sala Stampa anywhere these days. He's, I mean, if you were able to read French, you should subscribe to L'Equipe just for him, really. He's turned, so there you go. He's turned away either in disgust or in embarrassment, Brian. And um, Brian, we've seen a bike race today... Not, which is not to say that we haven't seen 15 other bike races on this Giro d'Italia, but we saw the kind of bike race that we have been waiting what feels like quite a long time for. We've seen a definitive verdict, uh, a sort of definitive litmus test of this Giro d'Italia, and we know a lot more now about where this Giro is and where it's going, don't yeah. we? Yeah, yeah. It, we're at that point now in the race where the podium, not who's specifically going to be on, on each step, but the, the riders who are in contention for either winning it or finishing on the, on the podium, they've sort of segregated themselves from the, from the rest. And we can see the momentum patterns as well. Yeah, We've exactly. got a good idea now of who's going to continue to go backwards and who's going to yeah. move forwards. On that note, Brian, I think we should get to today's Tale of the Tapa. It's time for the Tale of the Tapa. Off you go, Brian. Well, thank you, Daniel. So, stage 16 from Sabio Chiese to Monte Bondone, 203 kilometers with a very mountainous second half. So they had more than 5,000 meters of climbing in total, and uh, it actually meant almost seven kilometers uphill. Three riders didn't either feel well or didn't feel like that, and they were not signed in at the start. It was Simon Clark from Israel Permitech, Davide Ballerini, one more from Sudal Quickstep, and Emmanuel Gebregaisier from Trek Segafredo. 
lot happening in the early uh, stage. There, there was a very high pace start, but almost uh, yeah, 52 kilometers an hour for the first 30 minutes. And that actually eventually meant that a big group went away, 17 riders, uh, with the best rider being in the GC being uh, Aurelien Paré-Peintre and after him Jack Haig. But it was once again a really mixed bag. Uh, speaking of Paré-Peintre, he was, had company of his brother in the big breakaway. There was Jonathan Milan, who was there for the intermediate sprints and then eventually fell back. Carlos Verona again, Ben Swift, somewhat surprisingly, I suppose, um, from Ineos Grenadier, Salvatore Puccio as well. Filippo Sanna, the Italian champion, uh, Tom Scoins once again, and Diego Lisi. Um, so f- f- one team had four riders, and that was the Green Project Bardiani, uh, the t- two riders from Ajidosea, two from Cofidis, two from Jekolula, two from Astana, and there were several other teams with two riders. The gap went up. Uh, sorry, the gap went up somewhat significantly, and it actually meant that the one of the Parapanto brothers, Aurelien, he was moving up quite quickly in the in general classification. Jumbo, for that reason, was he was virtual pink jersey for a lot of this stage. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the reason why Jumbo was was Jumbo was pulling. Ben Healy was also in the breakaway, and he was actually the first rider uh, at the top of the Paso Santa Barbara. And he was not just virtually, but also physically in the climber's jersey. And he took that from uh, David Baez. So he is now in blue after today. Um, interestingly enough, Astana had... This is the first time we really saw Astana very active. And they were actually the team that opened it up. So Vadim Prusinski was the first to pass the summit of uh, the Matasone uh, climb. A lot of riders actually already getting dropped on the third climb, the climb to Serrada. And yeah, at this point, Bruno Amara uh, was struggling for his lead. He was not struggling at that point yet to sit in the in the favorites group. But then with around 50 kilometers uh, to go, a lot of splits in the front group. The stronger riders moved away. The pink jersey group was at this point four and a half minutes behind. Speaking of that group... Pavel Sivakov left the Giro today. He must have suffered f- from the backlashes of he his crash. crash today. Yeah. Oh, he had another crash. Well, there you go. That explains everything. The first to go on the Bandone were Sana, uh, the Italian champion from Jaco Lula, and Carlos Verona. Didn't get a big gap. Jumbo was still pulling. The front group at that point was quite reduced. At the foot of the Monte Bandone, the the gap was three minutes, so that's 20 kilometers from the, from the finish. As... Amarayo started to look like he was in trouble. Uh, Ron Dennis of Jumbo-Wismas had a very hard tempo uh, on the earlier parts of the Bondone. And up front, the group now consisted only of eight riders. And with 50 km- 15 to go, the gap was less than two minutes. And uh, interestingly enough, when Ron Dennis fell back, there was just a brief moment where you couldn't really tell who was going to take control. That didn't last long for, because UAE did a massive pull. Ulisi, who had been in the breakaway, was the first just to pull a little bit. And after that, Jay Vine took over. Uh, and... It had a consequence. Uh, Thibaut Pino fell off the GC group with uh, eight, kil- eight and with eight and a half kilometers, the break got caught. Dave Vine upped the tempo significantly, and then Sean Mader for the first time started to accelerate. At this point, it was what we've been waiting for, a real GC race. Up there was Almeida, Geraint Thomas, Roglic, Kuss, Dunbar, and then Sana just for a, for a brief uh, pull for Dunbar. Uh, and then once Almeida started to pace again, it was actually a real attack with 5.8 kilometers to go. Uh, Dunbar was struggling at this point. Roglic was struggling at this point, And Garen Thomas bridged up to Almeida. And they got a gap of around 30 seconds once they started to uh, work together. Um, 
he actually looked like he was suffering a little bit initially, Garen Thomas, but he when once he bridged up and they started to work together, they obviously had the interest, common interest in dropping and taking as much time from, especially Roglic. So in the sprint, Jean Meda was quite, it wasn't, it's never an easy win after such a stage, but he, he easily outsprinted uh, Garen Thomas. Uh, trailing behind them were Roglic and Dunbar, who had like co- collaborated somewhat after Sepp Kuss, uh, was basically done. And they finished 20 seconds behind Almeida and Garen Thomas. And Brian, well, that changes things on the general classification, doesn't it? Because Garen Thomas is now in the pink jersey, 18 seconds ahead of Joao Almeida. Primoz Roglic is now third, 29 seconds down. Caruso has moved up two places despite having lost ground, I would suggest, in the battle for this Giro d'Italia. Um, he is now fourth, two minutes 50 down. We've got Dunbar in fifth, 3.03. The big movers the other way or backwards, uh, Bruno Almiray, the pink jersey overnight and on today's stage. He lost six places on general classification and is now 3.22 down, but I thought looked very good for a lot of today's stage. Look, Climbed quite smoothly, actually, even to the extent where I don't know whether there might be half a thought that he could have a have a future as some kind of GC rider. He's a tall one, then. He is, he is, but he's quite. Slim. I mean, he's now ahead of uh, uh, Pino, yeah. who, who he was supposed to help. Good day. So, yeah. And Andres Lechnesund, another former pink jersey, who has just been sort of slipping down by his fingernails uh, very slowly down the general classification, still riding very well. He lost three places and it's now 3.30 down. And you mentioned Thibaut Pino, lost two places. He's now 13th, almost seven minutes down. And Paris Peintre, who, as we said, spent a lot of the day in the virtual lead of the race, lost three positions on general classification. He's now out of the top 15. He's 16th, 10 minutes down. Um, I mean, uh, I think the bottom line is big racing, but still just 30 seconds between the first three riders in the GC. Absolutely. Absolutely, Brian. It's still very much wide open. And let's hear, shall we, from a few of the protagonists today, or people linked to the protagonists. Eddie Dunbar was one of the notable performances of the day. There was a point on the final climb to Monte Bondone where he was dictating the pace with his teammate Filippo Zana. And he, well, his stock is rising every day at the moment. He moves up three places today. We're going to hear from him. We're going to hear from his direct sportif, Matt White. And then we're going to hear from Mark Rafe, the Jumbo Visma direct sportif, in anticipation of hearing from the man himself... Primoz Roglic in the second part, but well, let's let's get Mark Race verdict first. As I said, it was I think it was fairly obvious what was going to happen. Um, I haven't ridden my, it's only my second Grand Tour, so yeah, as I said, but I think I'm we're learning quick, and yeah, what happened, we were prepared for it. You know, this three-week race, you know, you have to pace yourself. I know my limits. Um, I had to back off a bit there, and uh, yeah, I think uh, that was the moment where the race kind of went, you know, and. Uh, I backed my way back to Roglic and Kuss and um, yeah, as they said, I just sat, sat on them. Kuss wrote a really good tempo um, to limit the losses. Um, and then yeah, Primoz uh, brought the gap back a bit there in the finish, but uh, yeah. This is all I've ever wanted, was just have an opportunity in a race like this. And uh, thankfully, the team, Jake Olula, have put belief in me and uh, we've worked hard these last six months to get into shape for this race. And uh, I can just thank them for the opportunity, really. Well, Matt, a great performance by Eddie today. Um, is that more or less what you were expecting from him based on what you've seen so far in the Giro? 
Uh, I, I guess we didn't know what to expect, uh, expect in the fact that you know, this, today was probably the biggest selection of the tour. And so for Eddie to call uh, Zana there to, to push the pace when the selection was made and for him to be able to stay with Roderick to line was, uh, was as good or better than we, we would have expected. I mean, it seems like he doesn't really know what his limits are at the moment because he's not really been in this position before in a Grand Tour. I mean, it, it, how exciting is that as a DS, and I suppose for him as well, just for every day being a, a sort of new day of discovery? Yeah, it certainly is, and he's only done one Grand Tour before, and when he was here, he was in a working role, but you know, so to compare it to the last Grand Tour, he was very, very strong in the last week of the Giro when he did it before, so that's all we've got to compare it on, but uh, after today, the team and Eddie will take a lot of confidence out of that ride. How are you going to manage him now with a guy like that who has never been in this position before? Do you have to be careful to manage expectation or will you push him? No, I think he's managing, he's managing the situation very well. He's confident and uh, that's the main thing. And he saw a lot of cracks in, in the guys who were in front of him. He moved up from 8th to 5th today and uh, Eddie's showing no signs of, uh, of tiring. So an easier day tomorrow and then a big three days to finish off the race. You put the team to work on the second to last climb. You had Sam and Hessman up there. At that point, did you think that Primoz would be able to attack on the final climb? Uh, anyway, it was a pace to keep it uh, under control and uh, to not let, uh, let the group uh, get a too big gap because we still had some guys there that, uh, that also could potentially gain some time in the, in the GC. But yeah, it was not directly at that climb to close. You also saw that, uh, that it was, uh, was going up. Uh, but for sure, in the end, we were not counting uh, on, uh, on this scenario. Do you think it would be accurate to say that it wasn't a good day for Primoz? Or was that, I mean, he only finished 20 seconds behind Thomas. I mean, was it just a decent performance, but two riders were better? I think you can say that, yeah. I mean, uh, for sure, he's not doing a, a bad performance. Um, and also, what I, what I just said before, yeah, the, the time gap is also not, uh, not huge. The, the differences are not big. And I think that, uh, that for sure, on the, on the days that, uh, that are coming, that there is still... Uh, some time to uh, and, and an opportunity to bounce back and that's also what we will do what did he tell you today if anything did he give you any feedback about how he was feeling no 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 not at all it was just uh, the way how it uh, how it went uh, we we communicated about it and that uh, everything was fine and uh, so that's, that's also what we did Mark, is there some consequences from the crash is there is there an explanation for no i i just think just what um, yeah, what the question uh, was before that uh, the two guys went uh, were a bit stronger, and uh, and that's sometimes also sport. Do you think he can come back in the next few days, or is that kind of yeah? Level? For sure, he will uh, bounce back. I mean, he also showed that in the past already his, with his character and, uh, and 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 his spirit. And yeah, he's a fighter, and he will uh, he will bounce back. The cycling podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our long-term supporters, stretching all the way back to the 2016 Giro d'Italia. Now, one of the most contentious things in Italy is what kind of coffee you can have, when you can have it. So why not solve the conundrum once and for all by having a Go Energy and Caffeine Gel whenever you fancy it, because that will improve alertness, reduce fatigue, and help you to go faster and further for longer. I asked Ineos Grenadiers rider Ben Swift about the coffee rule, whether it's okay to have a cappuccino after 11 o'clock in the morning or not. Well, I thought the rule was after 12 o'clock, after midday. I'm not sure. Uh, to be honest, I'm happy either way. I think we are quite like going into Italian places or especially when we've got some of our Italian teammates, we do it on purpose just for the for the banter. Uh, 
But for favorite coffee, generally I'd always pick a flat white. Oh, Brian, a few things for us to conjure with there. Interesting, the slightly nuanced verdicts on Primoz Roglic's performance. We'll get we'll hear from Roglic in just a second, but um, I wanted to focus first for a minute on Geraint Thomas. I attended his press conference today after the stage, and I asked him, relatively speaking, how he felt the level was today compared to you know, other 15-kilometer climbs he's done in Grand Tours, um, for example, the Tour de France last year. And, and he said he thought it was very high indeed. I mean, I was trying to really gauge how bad a day this was for Primoz Roglic. I don't think it was that bad at all. Um, I think he was, you know, maybe one or two percent off his best. But Thomas, at this point in the race, looks as though he's going to be very difficult to dislodge. And the question is going to be, can Joao Almeida eke out some time and somehow... I mean, it's very difficult after today to pronounce any kind of definitive verdict on who is the strongest between Almeida and Thomas. And also, well, they they offer different things, don't they? They've got different, slightly different abilities. And Almeida is not nearly as experienced as Thomas, but then... Just looks, is, he just looks fresher, doesn't he? Yeah, and he's, and he's very, very consistent. He's yeah. extremely consistent. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was interesting because it looked as if Garen Thomas was actually struggling a little bit on the steeper parts of the climb today. And I think being so experienced and knowing himself so well in the same way that Primus Roglic does, even though he hasn't raced as long as Garen Thomas, that, that must come in really handy. So you know exactly where you can cut your losses and where you need to fall back a little bit. But he was also tactically very astute because when the opportunity came to take time from Roglic, I think he, that, that cost probably Garen Thomas the stage win because he dug really deep to go back uh, on um, Shaw Almeida. But uh, yeah, it's obviously too early to tell also with the very short distances in the GC time-wise. It's just that Almeida just look he looks fresh. Yeah, and he's an interesting rider, Joao Almeida. Obviously, in the shadow of uh, Tadej Pogacar, to a certain extent, at UAE Team Emirates, he actually uh, was asked during his press conference whether he'd been in contact with Pogacar recently. Pogacar apparently texted him the other day and said he needed to attack and take the jersey. Almeida replied that, well, I don't have your legs. He did say he's looking forward to watching Pogacar from the couch in July. He's not down to ride Tour de France. Incidentally, yesterday on the rest day in a team hotel, I bumped into Pogacar's agent, Alex Carrera, and I asked him whether Tade was back on his bike. He said no, but it's a question of days now. In the next couple of days, should be back on his bike. But Almeida's a guy, we don't know we don't know that much about, do we? Because he doesn't give an awful lot away. He's from a place called Caldas de Reina. Um, in well, it's just north of Lisbon in Portugal. They've actually got a cycling museum there, Brian, that predates Joao Almeida. Although there is now a Joao Almeida area exhibition in there, and it features the first bike he ever rode when he was three years old, which I thought was quite cute. Also features, of course, he's worn the pink jersey before. Um, he wore the pink jersey. When was that? Two. It was the, the COVID Giro in 2020. Yes, and it features that as well. I think they need to make a bit more room in that museum for for what's what's next for Charles Almeida. He's, he's definitely on the up, and he's still very young. He's also not the only Olympian to come from that town, um, Caldas. There was a gentleman called Joao Fragosa that came from Caldas, and he competed in the 1948 Summer Olympics in what, Brian? Painting. Did you know that there was there were 
Yes. Excuse me? Yeah, in the, in the Olympics in 1948, there were... Were painting by artistic, numbers? Or? No, there were, there were five disciplines. Um, let me just look this up. Um, and I don't know whether it was the only Olympics where art competitions at the 1948 Olympics. I'm just looking this up. Um, architecture, literature, music, painting and sculpture. Medals were awarded in five categories. Unfortunately, Joao Fragosa didn't win um, in his particular discipline painting but um there you go anyway brian back to joao almeida you're you're a good friend with his agent yeah that's a disclaimer you are you're a good friend so you have a business connection or an emotional <laughs> connect, no, connection with us, roglic's look, agent i'm i have a disclaimer i'm very close friends with joao almeida's tell us agent we don't know about joao almeida brian. yeah so I, I was also messaging back and forth with ken this evening you know and, and i think once he's once ken was able to breathe again he was um he was happy to talk about his uh, his rider. He's been his agent since he started Turn Pro, which he did with uh, Ed, um, Axel Merckx's team, Hagen Bernhardt. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying really hard not to be distracted now reading about the 1948 artistic Yeah, you have to let that go. Statues, Gustav Nordahl won in the statue in the sculpture category with homage to Ling. Um, Hubert Yonkas came third with Nageurs. Anyway, I think you could have sorry. done this while I was doing the table. Go on, the go on, sorry. But anyways, I was messaging, I did some work, uh, Daniel, I was messaging with Ken, and uh, he says he's never met a rider who has, in his entire, you know, Ken is, Ken was, uh, Ken's father was the CEO of Telecom. So Ken has been started very early with the, you know, washing cars That's and T Mobile. Not the team. That, exactly, the global CEO. So anyways, Ken, Ken knows cycling really well. He's never met a rider with as much self-confidence as Jean Almeida. And that says a lot because he's, he's got quite the portfolio, uh, him and, and uh, Joao Correra, his business partner in the agency called Corso. So he said when he first started, it was quite significant how, how much self-confidence he actually had. And then for some reason, and I think that I've never heard something like this before, as a young rider, Jean Almeida did not like to breathe through his mouth. And uh, and they, in his team where he turned, uh, well, semi-pro, I guess they were pro-continental at the time, if not continental. They said, well, you, you probably need to learn how to do that. Yeah, he's just not comfortable doing it. It wasn't really his thing. But then a few weeks later, he won the under-23 Liege based on Liege. So, this is one of those weird Giro facts. I remember in 2019, we discovered that Primoz Roglic had gone down a shoe size during the Giro d'Italia in 2019. It's up there with that. I'm not going to mention Prince Andrew and not sweating, but um, it's kind of, it's very unusual. It didn't breathe through his mouth. Yeah, he, well, I, uh, I think he did today. Imagine uh, discovering that for the first time that you can also breathe through your mouth. Yeah. What a I revelation. Mean, yeah, also it must be like if you, know, if you were born without eyesight or if you couldn't hear anything. But he also says he's uh, he's very popular in the team because he he never stresses about anything, and I mean just for that reason I would like him to travel with us for the cycling podcast because <laughs> you know we have we have some long days as well. But he's like completely immune to stress. He's apparently also very liked on the staff side because he's always very thankful for the work the team does for him. Humble person, but extremely ambitious are the two words that come to mind. You can tell this information came from his agent, can't you? <laughs> it's, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's in the most textured perspective. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right. Thanks, I mean, every, thanks for I that, mean, Joao made a propaganda case. Yeah, I mean, if he's, a, yeah, he's an absolute immoral louse, I would probably get a phone call from either Joao or... His, the other part of that agency. But yeah, here we are. He could now win the Giro. He could, he, he could he, win he the Giro. He was asked that. Yeah. He was asked, and talking about his self-belief, his self-confidence. Exactly. He was asked that in the press conference and he sort of hesitated for a split second, but his, his answer ultimately was yes. Yeah. yeah. And what I also like is that you know, I, was, I was listening in a... Buonasera. I know McDonald's. 
so I was listening in on that press conference as well. And um, he, he also didn't say day by day once. Not even once did Charles made us say that he would take the race day by day. Highly appreciated. Brian, we should underline as well the work that his team did today. And in particular, a resurgent Jay Vine. Jay, Vine, Jay Vine's had a few issues in this uh, Giro d'Italia with crashes and, and illness. And today, his acceleration with about eight kilometers to go, or just over eight kilometers to go. His stock went up. Well, that was the, the single most potent attack, I think, or potent acceleration I think I've seen in the Giro d'Italia, just based on how much damage it did. It, it obliterated, it got rid of uh, seven, eight, nine riders from the group at that time. And it's, it's exactly something like that that should install that type of confidence in Charles Almeida because he's going to need a wingman for those coming stages where having someone that's strong. You know, today we saw Aaron's men and the other riders supposedly, you know, to be next to Garen Thomas at the thick end, the, the pointy end of the race, and they had to basically fall back uh, a little bit early, I would say, but probably to be expected. So just just because of that, Shaw Almeida is in a better position, even if Garen Thomas now has the pink jersey. Brian, before we speak about Primoz Roglic and hear from him, let's hear from uh, an occasionally Roglic-esque friend of ours, um, Lionel Burney. It's past 11, time for my cappuccino break. La pausa cappuccino con Lionel Burney. Dopo le 11. Pronto. Hello, Daniel. Ciao, Daniel. How are you after your relaxing rest day? Well, more to the point, how are you after your pausa in the pausa de cappuccino? Oh. Uh, oh. You had a, a day off, didn't you? Oh, I did have a day off, yeah. I went down to Bath to so meet up day with... off, Lionel? Well, yes, it was a working day off. It was a working day off. Um, I mean, it doesn't sound like work, does it, going for a bike ride with Rob Hatch and Sean Kelly, two of the voices of cycling. Uh, they were uh, on a legitimate uh, rest day. Doesn't sound like work. Uh, doesn't sound like doesn't work, sound does like it? Work. No, no, no. <laughs> it was a very, it was a very enjoyable day. I've not seen Sean since before lockdown, and I haven't seen Rob to go for a bike ride since the Trainer Road Challenge. We from the dim and distant past. You may remember Richard, Rob, and I raced over a four-kilometer pursuit distance at Manchester Track, having trained really quite hard for it. Rob Hatch won, of course, um, but I mean he was uh, well. He was he was young and sprightly then. Yesterday, I mean Sean Kelly just celebrated his 67th birthday but i have to say going very very well on the bristol to bath railway path and uh, we well it took a fairly surreal turn our ride because we ended up at a building in the southwest of bristol a tower block which was used for the exterior shots of nelson mandela house which is where the trotter brothers lived in the brilliant British sitcom ah. Only Fools and Horses and yeah I, I, a rest day trip to go and see a sort of pop culture um, well, it's sort of an icon second significant mural is featured on this year's second podcast coverage after the Maradona one in Napoli um, the caravan the caravan is coming through so I'm standing just behind the finish line in Monte Bondone 20 kilometers to go in the race and yeah the sound quality may deteriorate at this point we're about to we're yeah. about to be on the end of torture by bass music the excitement that the caravan does ramp up the excitement though doesn't it 
Yeah, I was yeah. also about to wrap up the excitement by intercepting um, Chiro. But I was about to get my lasso out and uh, and capture Chiro for a couple of minutes, but he scuttled off. I don't know. He was getting all sorts of phone calls from different people oh. and darting off in different directions. So he slipped through my fingers again, but he might be back in seconds. Brilliant. Well, I should just say my bike ride with Rob Hatch and Sean Kelly, it was work. I put together some kind of explore episode, uh, maybe to go out shortly after the Giro. It was nice to catch up with them. I mean, it was a pretty random um, conversation along the way, as you can probably imagine, but a very enjoyable way to spend Giro's rest day. What did you get up to? Well, I know I went to see Mark Cavendish retire, or announced he was going to retire. And of course. That yeah. announcement, that announcement is also the subject of tomorrow's Kilometer Zero, in fact. So that's Excellent. something to look forward to. Very also much avoid. so. Um, well, I was going to say, yes. it kind of it might pair up quite nicely with the Kilometer Zero I made at the Tour de France a couple of years ago when he equaled Eddie Merckx in the list of all-time Tour de France stage winners and uh, at Richard's uh, suggestion and encouragement he suggested that I kind of write and record a series of kind of vignettes meetings with Mark Cavendish over the course of his career and uh, that kilometer zero is available on the free feed I'll also put a link to that one in the next edition of the 1101 cappuccino which will go out towards the end of the week and uh, because it really is the end of the of an era isn't it Mark Cavendish retiring he's been sprinting at the very top level since 2007 his first world title in 2005 a long old stint at uh, the very top of the sport for him. Yes, Lionel, absolutely. Um, Chiro was there, of course. He still hasn't returned. Uh, he, he's disappeared over the brow of the mountain. Um, we're in, we, we might talk about this later in the podcast. We're in bear country here. A lot of, um, yeah, quite dangerous altercations with bears have occurred in this part of the northern Italy recently. I hope Chiro's okay. Um... But, Lionel, it's a bike race has broken out at the Giro d'Italia with oh, 16 kilometres to go now, 17 kilometres to go. So I better get back to my seat in this sort of ad hoc area. You know it well, the cage behind the finish line. Indeed, yeah. Kind of missing it, kind of missing it. Looking, looking forward to getting back into the thick of the action at the Tour de France. And just a little bit more housekeeping, actually. A few listeners have asked about historic episodes, things that they remember from the, uh, well, the, the not-so-dim but distant past. And obviously on the mainstream apps such as Apple, Spotify, Google really only a couple of hundred or so of the most recent episodes appear anything older than that kind of drops off the bottom of the feed but every episode is available either on our audio boom page which is where all of our audio is hosted or the easier way to find it is at thecyclingpodcast.com there is a playlist with every single episode there and one other little bit of housekeeping Stacy Snyder's Cups, which sold out in, well, a matter of minutes on the opening day of the race. We are still looking for nominations for a good cause, cycling related uh, or not, but a good cause that we can donate the, um, the, the portion of money from the sale of those cups and bowls to if you want to con- email us, contact at thecyclingpodcast.com with your suggestions, please. 
Lionel, I'm going to have to put the phone down on you in a second just because um, 16 kilometres ago now, but I uh, have been rejoined by Chiro. Chiro, say hello oh. to Lionel. Uh, hello, Lionel. How are you? Um, oh. I'm sad that you are not here. You too? Oh, I'm very sad, Chiro. Sad not to be able to say hello to you in person. And uh, this is well, sad, isn't it? I imagine. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where, where are you exactly? In London? I well, no, I'm in Not Watford, Chiro. I'm in Not Watford, and I noticed that Mark Cavendish has beaten you to retirement. Uh, I don't hear very well, but Lionel, just to let you know, if you are in London, I think that London by far. It's really better than Monte Bondone eh, between me and you and between me and our listeners. Oh, no no beaches in London, Chiro. Not really, huh? I mean, I'm not the only guy here racing, huh? No, that's true, but how do you feel at the moment? Uh, like I said, uh, uh, yeah, still recovering, but uh, uh, okay, huh? uh, happy. Still, still close. Does no? it bother you? Sorry? Does it bother you that you're not recovered yet? Uh, for sure you wish yes, to, to, to be completely 100%, but uh, on the other hand, I mean, uh, I'm still here, so I'm happy. Okay. So, Brian, that was Bernie first, Roglic second, in case you were confused, in, in case you didn't know which was which. Um, Primoz Roglic, difficult to decipher his post-race interviews because they're always said with a bit of a, a smirk and a wink, and they're always relatively jovial, and we don't necessarily... Well, we take them... I think about seriously as he takes those interviews. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah. But there are occasionally there are occasionally glimpses of insight, aren't there? And just talk him talking about his recovery and alluding I mean he's talking about the crashes, the couple of When the rumors the rumors were flying also in the Sala Stampa, but even on Italian TV, uh, Davide Cassani said that he had talked to someone on the team and and mentioned that he'd actually had suffered quite a bit after that crash, the crash that took out mm. Tugging Hart. I mean, what we did see from him was you, uh, uh, a Roglic that we've seen in the past. I mean, I don't necessarily want to um, draw parallels with the La Planche de Belfi, but there have been times over the last three or four years when on those rare occasions when in mountain stages he has been slightly off his game or he's slightly, he, he looks like he almost loses his rhythm. I mean, what's actually happening is he, he's not feeling strong enough, but his hips start to move. Um, the... The fast cadence, the high cadence no longer looks like a virtue. It starts to look like a handicap. It looks as though he's not actually pushing that much power through the pedals. However, as I said before, my suspicion is, and I put it to Mark Reef earlier, as you heard, my suspicion is that that wasn't a bad performance. No, it wasn't. And and I think he, they will take heart from the fact that he was he was coming back in the last kilometer. I think the sprint was quite telling. Um, Eddie Mer- Eddie Merckx, not Eddie Merckx, not yet. Eddie Dunbar is a fast, explosive rider. When he and said that Roglic took back some time on that hard yeah, last kilometer and, too. and Roglic still was able to out-sprint him. So this was good today also. Yes, but I don't think his... We'll talk about Sepp Kuss in a minute, but I don't think his goose is cooked just yet. Certainly not. No, no, no. It's only when you look at riders who you who distinctively look as if they're on their way up. And, and, and that's the case for sure, Almeida, big time. So if, if today was just a, a one-off or a tendency, that's really what we'll, what we'll know, not tomorrow, but in the coming days. 
Yeah, and this was an unusual unusual climb. I mean, not just in this Giro d'Italia, but it's not that often that we see hard climbs of 20 kilometers. Uh, you occasionally get one like the Gran Sasso d'Italia where it's sort of 30 kilometers at 4% or 5%. But this was mm, t- almost 20 kilometers. Well, it was over 20 kilometers. But the real sort of hard, genuine climbing part was the thick end of 20 kilometers. And if you look at the final climbs on the two remaining mountain stages, they're not as long. And I think that will ultimately help Roglic. I think the stages, the coming stages, might ultimately suit him better than this one. Yeah, um, yeah. The, if, the, he's, the if he's if he's able to recover. Yeah, I mean, I should say the Trecimili Lavaredo. I mean, that is almost twenty kilometers if you take the starting point from Cortina. And don't forget, then on that profile, it, it's it's basically up, and with just a few descents in between. And the last half of the stage is pure climbing. So you can say that theoretically those climbs suit him better. But but if he's not perfectly recovered and on one of his best days that he could possibly have he's not going to win the Giro you mentioned Sepkus and he did invaluable work in pacing Roglic back towards Almeida and Thomas but also I think just as a reassuring presence to stop him from panicking I think he was absolutely essential he stopped the bleeding yeah yeah exactly and uh, he applied the tourniquet and uh, I actually spoke to Sepkus this morning just asked him about how his Giro was going he said he felt great coming into the Giro he, he was sick in the first week and we'd heard this on the rumor mill that Sepkus he was being isolated from the team um, other teams had spotted this but he's feeling good now and he's, but he said it's been a very strange Giro it's been a Giro of attrition. He'd never got this far into a Grand Tour of the many Grand Tours that he's done and felt as though well, he'd done as, as few sort of intense efforts as they've done in this Giro. And he was, I think a lot of a lot of riders, I was speaking to Hugh Carthy as well this morning and they, they were quite uncertain about how they would perform when they were finally tested because... Um, the, the, we've seen we've seen little sort of cameos from various riders and these sort of ten minute bursts of actions, but uh, of action, but nothing that's really given us a definitive snapshot of where everyone stands in terms of their their um, their ultimate sort of potential to finish in the top ten or top fifteen or whatever it is their goals are in this Giro d'Italia. But I think we have that sort of photograph now. Yeah, but honestly, thinking about it, I, I probably have to contradict myself at this point because even if we've, we can now isolate three candidates for the podium with them being only half a minute of difference that the section below where riders are two and a half minutes and, and downwards I still think the, the stage to Trecimi Lavaredo on Friday is still hard enough for one of those riders to take time if, if you have a bad day that day it's not about a couple of minutes you, you'll fall back potentially you know you lose way more time if you have a bad day that day. Brian, talking to mountains, um, this brings us to our Chiacchierata del Giorno. Mountains and volcanoes. Today's an unusual Chiacchierata del Giorno. It's, it's going to be hard to do better at, I mean, at this point, Dennis. It's yeah. not with a cyclist, but it is someone who is here talking to cyclists, finding out about cyclists. Um, his name is Leonardo Piccione, and he's at the Giro d'Italia with our good friends from the Gironimo Italian podcast. And we gave Leonardo a lift today from the start in Sabio Chiese to Monte Bondone. And we took the opportunity to, well, to find out more about his very unusual and meandering path into cycling journalism. La chiacchierata del giorno. The teen wag of the day. 
Well, Brian, we've picked up a way for stray on the route of the Giro d'Italia. We're joined by our good friend today who needed a lift, Leonardo Piccione of well, the podcast that we mention almost every day on our podcast, Gironimo. It's our Italian sister podcast. And I thought it'd be interesting to speak to Leonardo. We've had him on the podcast before, but of all of you, know, we, we spend every day sort of searching, scrambling around for interesting colours stories on the Giro. We look for riders with strange passions, hobbies and so on, strange life stories. Leonardo's is pretty unusual because Leonardo, we've known him for a few years now, he follows the Giro. So podcaster, journalist in May, the rest of the year he does something completely different. He works in Leonardo, is it a volcano museum in the very north of Iceland, have I got that right? Uh, It used to be a volcano museum, but now since two years we changed it it into a Eurovision museum (laughs) because yeah in the town where I live in Iceland almost the same in Husavik in the northern part of Iceland Netflix came two years ago and they shot this Eurovision movie with Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams it was a very popular movie and we decided I suggested actually to my Icelandic friends to open an exhibition a museum dedicated to the Eurovision Song Contest and this movie so I'm working there and taking care of the exhibition for 10 months so no more, every year. No more volcanoes, but I thought volcanoes were your passion. You've written a book about volcanoes. Yes, yes. It's on standby because this is a temporary project about Eurovision. It's going to be three years, hopefully. But after that, I will be back to possibly my volcano passion. The book has been published. It's going to come out in Spanish this summer oh. and hopefully in English at some point. But now it's all about this Eurovision thing in Husavik. My head is hurting. I'm trying to untangle this in my brain. I'm trying to think of what is the most appropriate next question to ask. But you're from Puglia, yes. first of all. Yes. How did this happen? How did... Well, how, how did you go to... Why did you go to Iceland in the first place? Yes, I went there the first time seven years ago while I was finishing my PhD in statistics. I was in England, actually, in Oxford. And I, <laughs> I realized that that was not my life. I mean, I wanted to finish the PhD, but I realized, okay, you when I'm... My future is cycling volcanoes in Eurovision. And Eurovision, no. It's an honest dollar in that one. <laughs> no, I just went for a holiday in Iceland. There were, like, very cheap flights from London. I spent two weeks as a tourist, like many people do and I realized while I was in Iceland that that place had something special for me that there was a special connection between myself and Iceland so I decided to go back volunteering in a library and then working in, a, in another small museum and then I started writing this volcano book and I'm still there now Wow and where uh, at what point is cycling come into the story or was it always has it always been a passion of yours it's always been a passion of mine you know uh, I, I come from a region which is not really uh, into the you know a, a big region for cycling tradition in Italy Puglia we don't even have like a professional cyclist at the moment I, I think so watching Giro on television in May for me was something exotic I would say because I could see finally mountains I grew up far away from mountains you know in a very very mountains on we're driving up the Brenner on motorway towards mm-hmm. Austria effectively it's got mountains left and right today yeah and yeah for me May you know for every Italian student is the end of the school the school ending is near and then you have this thing going on on TV where you can learn about your own country and places that 
most of the times you don't see like mountains for me or snow which now is very common living in Iceland but when I was young and I got passion with cycling it was something uncommon for me and Giro d'Italia was the, the, the all of these things together so geography history and sport and stories which is the reason now why now I'm here like collecting and telling and telling small stories you know of cyclists and places for me this is cycling it's all together is my country is little stories big stories geography and all of it any statistics uh, not at the moment but yesterday I have to tell you we got um, you know uh, how do you say compete in class homework homework from uh, this uh, statistic professor in the south of Italy in high school He's, he gave this homework to his students all about all the questions are about Giro d'Italia for example like calculating the probability that both Baez, Mattia and Davide are in the same breakaway so he sent us this message with the, the, paper, the PDF of the homework and so yeah how the, long did it take for you to figure that out? I still haven't, but it's not it's not so easy because it's the last year students of this uh, high school in um, in Rivoli actually. This is a professor from Rivoli where we were a few days ago with Giro, and I still haven't tried to solve the problem. I think I'm still able to do it, but it would take some time. I feel like I've got a million more questions. I feel like this merits a, a feature length mini-series um, <laughs> or, no, or a novel well yeah just to understand uh, everything about how you well, how you linked up with our friends Filippo and, and Michele Pellacci but um, we'll, we'll maybe do that another day Leonardo just tell us last thing what's been your favourite story of the Giro so far because you know you specialise like I said we, we all look for these offbeat left field tangential stories what's been your favourite story of the Giro so far oh I think it's Derek G Derek G story because we went to talk to him the morning before he went for the first breakaway in his Giro. I think he's also today in the breakaway, but that was the first morning nobody basically knew anything about him. And uh, the press officer of uh, Israel Premier Tech suggested us to ask a question to Derek about bird watching. And yeah, I, yeah so that's, that was the first question I think he got ever from a journalist about bird watching. And uh, in the afternoon he was in the breakaway and the Italian television, Rai, uh, shared the picture of his favorite bird, which is the dark-eyed Junko, and now I think, it's something like that. spirals to the extent where I'm doing exactly. karaoke of Paul McCartney songs dedicated to his him and his bird watching um, so it's kind of your fault as well okay Leonardo sort of well a week to go and we're all a little bit tired but hang on in there and um, well we look forward to catching up with you later in the week or in Iceland next time grazie mille don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.
La Renzando, a postcard from Italy, with Larry Warbass. Sam, how was your rest day? It was actually really nice, yeah. We had sun, so that was good, and we had a nice hotel, so yeah, that, that helped. I feel more rested now. Uh, give us a uh, blow by, well, as, as much as you want to share about what you actually did. I mean, I just rested. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we woke up, had breakfast, pretty chill. We went for a ride at 10.30, did like two hours. Um, a little bit too hard of a parkour for my liking. We had like a 10K climb and then an 8K climb. It wasn't like, you know, steep, but still. We had almost a thousand meters of climbing in a, yeah, like 55K ride. So I think that was a little bit too much climbing, but you know, anyway, it was fine. Uh, then we came back, had lunch, uh, took a nap, slept for like an hour. Got massage, went to the osteo, then went to the kine, like the kinesiotherapist. Actually, the whole day was kind of full, so, so yeah. But uh, yeah, then we had dinner and went to bed, so it was, it's kind of funny because you don't do anything, but uh, in the end, it goes by quick. How do you feel about this week? Like when you've got a week of you know two 5,000 meter climbing stages, I mean, apprehensive, nervous, probably not excited. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's more just like uh, I really hope I can get in the breakaway so we can do something uh, one of these days, you know. Uh, it's not a whole lot of days left to show yourself, so I think that's almost what you're more apprehensive about. It's less about, like, the difficulty of the stages and more about, like, there are a dwindling number of opportunities to go for a stage win. So, uh, yeah, I think that's more uh, where the apprehension comes from, but uh, no, it should be okay, especially now that the sun's shining. <laughs> Well, Brian, that was Larry this morning, our good friend Larry Warbass. He didn't manage to get in the break, unfortunately, today, but, well, two of his teammates did, the Paris Peintre brothers, and plenty of opportunities to come later in the week for Larry. Interesting, I had a conversation with Joe Dombrowski, our other good American friend, yesterday at the Astana Team Hotel, and he was talking about how it can be difficult sometimes when you're in a Grand Tour as as a rider who has always been nominated or has been selected by their team to get into breakaways he said it's it's much harder it's a much harder and frustrating potentially exercise than being picked as a domestique where there's a sort of subjective judgment from the directors and from everyone else at the end of every day on how well you've done your job whereas if you are in the team as a stage hunter every day that goes past when you're not in the break or you haven't got a result you failed. One, yeah, you failed and there's one fewer yes. day yeah. to actually get the job done. Um, just talking about Joe Dombrowski, I noticed that today, well, it looks like he was on Mark Cavendish duty. Um, he successfully, he and Gianni Moscon successfully accompanied Mark Cavendish safely into the finish at Monte Bondon. He was 40-something minutes down, well down, but um, looks as though Joe was pretty important for his team today. Mark Cavendish, of course, well, he had some big news to announce yesterday. I was there at the uh, press conference close to Brescia, and, well, I did know that he was going to announce his retirement. did hear a few weeks ago, in fact, that that was his plan. This was going to be his last year, but he only took the decision to announce the news now or yesterday, a couple of days ago, and it was a, an emotional affair. His whole family were there. Um, his four kids and his wife Peter and there were a number of journalists or about 15 journalists there and he was very emotional as you would expect um, didn't give too many details about future plans he wants to focus on the next few weeks he wants to focus first of all on tomorrow which is going to be the 
the penultimate opportunity for him in this Giro d'Italia in Carole. It's, it's a big day. It's a big day for him tomorrow. Do you think he'll make it to Rome? Well, if he made it through today, then he's... I mean, that's one down, two to go. Um, I mean, I'm not worried about the time trial. No, I'm, I'm not worried about the time uh, trial. But he's stage 19 is... A, a, I know I can't stop talking about that stage, but I'll be so impressed if he's within the time limit that day. Extremely impressed. I think his fitness is good at the moment. Um, I think that is not too much of an issue. I mean, there are certainly riders who are climbing worse than him in this Giro. But, um, yeah, it'll be tough. It'll be tough. But, um, Brian, I mean, lots of tributes, obviously, overnight for Cavendish. Um, there will be a sort of drip, drip of of celebration over the next few months. So, you know, every last, the last Giro, last tour, last race, when that finally comes, then sort of end of the year, um, everyone will be an opportunity to sort of put his his achievements in more perspective tomorrow our kilometer zero is going to be about the announcement yesterday and you have a lot of history with mark cavendish don't you yeah i do i talk about that in the episode in the kilometer zero tomorrow um yeah quite a it's been an interesting sort of almost 20 years following him um yeah very lots of funny stories that come back to you this is the thing i often say about cavendish that it's easy to forget. And over the past few years, there have been a lot of different narratives that have um, have overshadowed the, the the narrative of the start of his career, which was this um, young Tyro that burst onto the scene, full of enthusiasm, full of life, a bit of an agent provocateur as well, or more than a bit of one for the first two or three years. And you sort of forget some of the stories some of the outrageous um, stories in a lot of cases that he regaled us with in those first two or three years from you know grabbing dictaphones out of people's out of journalists hands to um you know two fingered celebrations when he won races and there were a lot of very funny moments and outrageous moments and also you know one thing i said to some of our colleagues yesterday belgian colleagues who were asking me about cavendish you know we forget as well what the sport looked like in those years in 2000 and 2007, 2008, 2009, it was a sport that had been absolutely obliterated by doping scandals and it had also lost its sort of talismanic figure, which became its talismanic public enemy, which was Lance Armstrong. And it was a sport that was looking for new stars. And it was also, there was also this sort of fertile market of this English speaking market, the UK, which was just sort of preparing itself to the arrival fall, of Team Sky. To, well, yeah, and to fall in love with professional cycling. And Cavendish was the catalyst, really, for what came later. I've never was, thought about it that way, but yeah, that makes sense. Actually. Yeah, and he, was, yeah. he was a huge figure in the sport at, at that time, and he has remained so for the last you know, 15 years. So there's a lot more about it in tomorrow's Kilometer Zero. But Brian, um, let's talk about tomorrow's stage, shall we? La tappa di domani e la cena di ieri. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner. Brian, yesterday's evening meal, it was a good one. It was a very good one. Yeah, I'd, I'd gone about doing, doing some research <clears throat> and found a, a lovely place in a very lovely little town. Castiglione della... What's it called? Della Stiviere. Place I've never been... Up, I mean, for that sake, I'd never been to that part of Monticchiare where we were staying, which was also absolutely lovely, as Garen Thomas would say. <laughs> so I spent a bit of time... F- to find us a place for a good meal and a good meal was had it was a nice friendly we sat outside on the terrace we talked a bit to the host we had some he even gave us a dish uh, some homemade pasta 
tiny little tortellinis with truffle, summer truffle, black summer truffle. Very joyous. We had a good time. We was li we were listening to a bit of music on the way back in the car, and yeah, that was it for the rest day, really. It was Brian. Yeah. So tomorrow, no rest for uh, the riders tomorrow, though. No, well, no, yes and no, yes and no. It's a well, if it's a long stage, 197, but it's basically a slight downhill all the way. We start very close to where we are now, close to Trento, uh, in a in a place called Pergine Valsugana, and it finishes in Caole, home of uh, is it Matteo Trentin or Daniel Ots, one of the two. Okay, I'll tell you by the end. By the time you finish the next sentence, I'll have told you. Okay, well the next sentence is about <laughs> where it finishes, which is actually very close to Daniel Ots. I'm pretty sure it's Daniel Ots. Maybe a lot of uh, I don't know if it, do English speaking tourists uh, do your countrymen go to Lido di Esolo. Um, it's more of an Italian. Yeah, so it's a, it's sort of it? a beach area north of Venezia, north of Venice, close to yeah, it's close to Pordenone. It's it's right on the coast and yeah, in the town of Carole. And it's not a, I mean, it's not recovery, uh, but it's uh, it's the easiest stage apart from the Rome stage where we, when the race finishes on Sunday. Nothing much to say about it. There's two intermediate sprints. Other than that, it's, I mean, what sprints are left? <laughs> Uh, yeah, if they if those teams with the fast men remaining, if they want to take responsibility or if a breakaway can go, yeah, I think it will be. I mean, it goes past some beautiful places, including a place that you and I like a lot, Basano del Grappa. But it's not probably not the most interesting stage from a sporting perspective. Look out for Marco Frigo's fans at the side of the road tomorrow um, in and around Bassano de Grappa. Uh, we will be seeing how talented he is over the last week or so, the Israel Premier Tech young Italian rider. And we heard the other day for our Tifosi Kilometer Zero about how fervent his support is, his fan club. And I expect to see them out in force tomorrow. There are quite a few riders who hail from on or close to the route tomorrow. And we're also somewhat close to Jonathan Milan's part of Italy I mean with them definitely the yeah I mean it's not that far so with him being in the sprinters jersey with two uh, intermediates up for grabs and the finish there I would expect a lot of his family to come down for that this reminds me of last year when uh, what was it Alberto Dainese won a stage where were we Reggio Emilia and in his post-race interview he said oh, it was good to win on home roads and he, he was from he's from about 300 kilometers away yeah, Friul is not that far away from Kaole. That's it's sense. probably more than 300 kilometers. Anyway, Brian. Well, uh, I'll you... take you up on that. So there'll be a corrections corner about it tomorrow if you are not exactly right. Okay. Okay. Well, um, there's a fun activity for the evening. Brian, um, we'll be back tomorrow from Kaole, from the Adriatic coast, hopefully with a, a, a couple of nice glasses of spritz. I think Brian's already trying to prove me wrong. He's already tapping away on his face. Brian, good evening. Good evening. Buonasera. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burnett.